Hi folks, and this is your first Tortoise Shack podcast of 2023. Happy New Year to you. If you are listening, if you like what we do, please join us in 2023. It's patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. We'd really appreciate it. It keeps the mics on and the conversations happening. This is the conversation we had with Dr. Brian O'Boyle recently on Tax Haven Ireland, and I think it's a fascinating insight especially considering our position currently in the global tax avoidance network and where we may find ourselves should the multinational companies uh, choose not to continue to use Ireland as the most successful Wavin pipes in that industry. Uh, There's a lot in it and I hope you enjoy it. Please, 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 if you can help us, join us and try it for a month. Try it for January. There's a lot of additional content up there already. I had a brilliant conversation with Angus Kelly, who listeners will recall had just come back from Ukraine where he was helping with the EU's advisory mission into war crimes and atrocities taking place after Russia's invasion. Uh, We had a great conversation. Angus was very kind to join me in the tortoise itself. And Sinn Féin's Morris Quinlevin joined me for the first time for what I would say is a really, really interesting conversation that we got into it let's just say there was a lot to cover and it went places i wasn't expecting all of those are available right now on the patreon feed no one likes begging no one likes having to rattle buckets but unfortunately we are where we are we are ad free sponsor free and we want to remain editorially independent and the only way we can do that is if some of you put your hands in your pocket and keep the show on the road it's a struggle i won't lie to you 2022 was a bad year in terms of the patreon model but i hope better things are around the corner and i think some of you believe that too thanks for listening thanks for the support i won't delay you any further enjoy the podcast Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we're back talking a topic that we've covered on this podcast since the inception, folks, and something that it still doesn't get enough attention in Ireland. And whether it's because uh, it's the old phrase that it's impossible to get a man to understand something if a salary, it depends on him not doing so, or is it like a collective uh, amnesia or some sort of Stockholm syndrome? But we're back talking corporation tax and Listeners will be familiar with today's guest, Dr. Brian O'Boyle, who is an economics lecturer at St. Angela's in Sligo. Brian, it's great to talk to you. Listen, Tony, thanks very much for having us on. And just before I start, um, I got really some terrible news yesterday. And, and a lot of people who, who knew him got some terrible news yesterday that John Molno has uh, sadly passed away. For those of your listeners who, who don't know John, John was a member of the British Socialist Workers' Party for nearly 50 years. He then moved to Ireland. He's been here for more than a decade. He's been a driving force behind uh, Unite Against Racism. He's been a driving force uh, in People Before Profit in Ireland. And he's also been the editor of the Irish Marxist Review. From the first day I met him to the last day I met him, he exuded a humanity that, you know, rarely enough do you meet it. And I just wanted to... um, uh, to acknowledge the inspiration that he's given me both as a friend and as a comrade and pass on condolences to his partner, Mary, and to his family. Thanks very much. Well said. We share those sentiments on the Tortoise Shack. It was, uh, we talked to um, Mehmet Ulada recently, and Mehmet, I know, uh, worked with him in United Against Racism and was very um, touched by by his his work and misses him dearly. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very sad day, and, and thanks for acknowledging. Really appreciate it. Brian, the reason I was so keen to get you back on is because we're back in this situation whereby, as I said at the outset, 
we're all we're trying to pretend that this is not um uh, you and I both heard an interview today where we we announced 5 billion in a, in a month in corporation tax receipts mm-hmm. and uh RT drive time had on a guest from one of the big four accountancy firms who came on thinking this was kind of good news and the question was I thought quite fairly put to them on the on relation to Ireland's status as a tax haven and they seemed genuinely taken aback by it. Just to put that in context for listeners, that over five billion that we've taken in one month was almost as much as we took in the entire year of 2015. Yeah. So you know, there's something it doesn't it doesn't tally. Can you can I first of all, before we get into some of the things I want to get it the the minutiae of it, can I get your sense of tax haven Ireland and how it's functioning and and why there is that I, I feel people pretending that it's, it, clearly we're not we, we are when we're such an outlier yeah well I mean I know the sense of your question and I would answer it by saying it's working very nicely thanks very much for the people it's meant to work for so as you say I mean I had a quick look back so if you go back a decade you were talking maybe five billion in corporation tax receipts um, and then that kind of steadily went up. So by about 2019, it had doubled, you know, 10, 10, 10 billion. And then all of a sudden, there's an enormous jump. So 2021, it's 15 billion. That's an extra, like, that's more, as you say, the, the jump is bigger than what it used to be in total. Mm. And then this year, another 7 billion. So it's 21.1 billion by November, probably 22, 23 billion by the end of the year. So the, you know, it was a very interesting interview, as you say, because the representative of one of the big four was on effectively thinking that she could have a very simple, nice, soft interview where she would say, isn't it amazing? Aren't we a, a brilliant, uh, you know, destination for foreign direct investment? Nothing to see here. We're just a very successful competitive economy. And what has happened is Ireland has outcompeted its rivals. And of course, as soon as the interviewer got a chance to speak, he just said, but hang on now. Let's parse these figures a bit and see where this money is coming from. Are we a tax haven? And she was completely taken aback because ordinarily, you know, representatives of industry don't expect representatives of RTE to actually challenge them. And she was completely, I felt she was quite flummoxed about it and went back to the stock answers. But actually, you know, I was on a year ago and we discussed this new mechanism they use, which is the capital allowances for intangible assets which is a big mouthful right and that's as you said at the start it can seem quite complex but look, I, I, I want yeah. I, I'm desperate to get into this so I just yeah, want to yeah. give this because this kind of this is the this is the nuts and bolts of we because no point in the shouting about the double Irish or the double Irish with a Dutch sandwich or all of mm. these you know all, this this is the um the monster energy drink of uh of Absolutely. of IP so we'll we, we please give us give me your rundown and I won't inter- yeah. interrupt you go ahead no no no, you're fine and i like the way you put that you know the, the the monster energy because look the figures are there basically ireland used to be what we would call a trampoline right so what used to happen was uh, ireland was a destination in the middle of a tax avoidance scheme so the money would flow into ireland but it wouldn't remain in the state it would actually eventually go off to a different place usually in the caribbean the sink would end up you know the final destination was in the caribbean islands and so on the one hand there wasn't an enormous tax take from it, but it didn't show up in the tax receipts then, obviously. I mean, that's that's fairly obvious. Now, what, ha- what happened after 2009 was the Irish state recognised that they could, in a world where more and more companies are trading on the basis of intellectual property, you know, uh, what, what makes an Apple phone an Apple phone? Well, obviously, there's the software, 
But in the end, a lot of why you reasons why you buy the Apple phone is because it's made by Apple. In other words, the trademark, the branding, the logo, the kind of lifestyle choice you're making is really important for these companies. And so what has happened internationally is more and more of the value in companies is coming from not their trucks or their machinery or even their, you know, their 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 actual product, no. but the intangible. In other words, things you can't touch. That's why it's called intangible. So it's intangible. I, 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 know, I know, but the biz speak like to say the, the IP, the intellectual property, yeah. bro, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But of course, you can touch the profits afterwards. So, I mean, the, the point is that they can certainly touch something, uh, but that's what they call it. So what the Irish government does, it says, look, if you can bring your intellectual property into Ireland, so say, for example, Apple have on their books uh, assets worth, that's, and I mean, these are enormous figures. You could be worth 200 billion, right? And they, it's very difficult for any outside agency like a revenue commissioners to really know how much was spent in creating these assets because they're in-house, they're made inside Apple, let's say, or Google or whoever, and they then give you a report that says we spent X amount, you know, and you've mm-hmm. got to kind of, it's very difficult to, to to sort of challenge that. That's the first point. So it kind of opens up a blank checkbook for them, number one. Then they can say, listen, you know, we made, let's say, 25 billion euros this year in profits. But in order for us to make that 25 billion, we had to use our intellectual property. And in order for us to use the intellectual property, we had to pay for it. And lo and behold, how much did we pay for the intellectual property? Well, if we paid 200 billion for the intellectual property and we only made 25 billion in profits, well, then we can start to write off the profits against our costs. Mm. And so what happens in the Irish system is increasingly there's vast sums of money being declared in Ireland as, you know, tradable profits. But then there's a vast amount of that is written down. So I just had a quick look at that for you, Tony, just to give you a sense, right? So in 2011, Companies declared 16 billion of intangible assets. They claimed against 16 billion. Do you know what it was this year? Or just last year, sorry, 94 billion. Wow. Now you think about that, like that's, you know, 94,000 million euros and 98% of it was claimed by American corporations and 50% of the tax take count comes from 10 companies. So, Mm. you know, you don't need to be Einstein to join the dots there. And I just... I want to make this real for people if we can. Uh, you've mentioned, you know, Apple or Google, but we also know that big pharma play a huge mm-hmm. role here. And we've yeah. seen some of the ways that they've done it. And, you know, I, I, I we've, we've exchanged notes and I was showing you, um, essentially, I think the shows that basically many of the uh, issues that they have around paying high pharma prices in the US relate back to operations in, in Ireland. And it's as simple as that. And at some stage, someone's got to get very angry with us, Brian, because, you know, the, the, the price of insulin shouldn't be linked to um, intellectual property in, in Ring of Skiddy. It just shouldn't be. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is always a human, you know, there are enormous human consequences to this stuff. Um, you know, on the one hand, it can seem quite technical. And of, co- of course, it's very beneficial to the players in the industry that it is quite technical because they want as much as possible to do this stuff in the shadows. And as you say, where it becomes real for people is when you think about something like a vaccine, let's say a Pfizer, you know, the, the COVID vaccine, where the truth of it is, is that all of an awful lot of the science that goes into the final sort of leap, you know, that they make around the vaccine comes from public funding, public science that's available to them. Then they get an awful... Uh, 
huge grants of public money to sort of carry out the research. And then they monopolize this so that nobody else can actually get it downstream and make sure that the whole world is is, is um, vaccinated against COVID to the point where we're still having breakouts in India and China and all the rest. Lots and lots, millions of people are, extra people are dying because of intellectual property rights. So the rights to your intellectual property trump other people's rights to live in certain If we can bring this back to the COVID vaccine, it was very mm. obvious because many countries were a pro TRIPS waiver. And the yeah. Irish government said no, and Absolutely. Pfizer was based here. Pfizer yeah. made, I think it was $17,000 per minute in their production of the of their of their of their vaccine. $17,000 yeah. per minute, I, folks. I heard a million an hour, it was even more. <laughs> A million in in every single hour. And as you say, the Irish government are the primary lobbyists Mm. in Europe to say we will not waive in a global pandemic where we have, you know, potentially, you know, tens of millions of people's lives on the line. The Irish government, as usual, lines up behind a tiny number of companies who, let's be honest, were already making vast amounts of profits and even if you could have signed an agreement to say you get your money back you know remember at the start they all made this big vow that we won't yeah. make profits off the covid yeah. vaccine that, that went away very quickly wonder where, wonder where that went yeah wonder how that, how that it, played out for it, didn't, it didn't last a quarter actually because i think it wasn't i, I think someone else the j and j people were out, out of the blocks first saying you know we, we'll need to we need to now factor in a profit margin and that was mm-hmm. within that was actually it was it was within six seven weeks of it that it, that those those um conversations started to happen. But like to get it back then, so so back to the conversation on drive time. Back to the person from the big four telling us that we're not a tax haven and everybody pays twelve and a half percent. How are they? How are they not paying twelve and a half percent? If that's our if that's our rate, Brian. If if this is the if this is what we're doing, how are we allowing them to effectively reduce down to to sometimes zero, often two or three percent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, again, it's it's fairly straightforward in some ways. It can seem a bit daunting. And if you want, for your listeners, we'll put up a link at the end to show people some of the tax tables that they use, right? But effectively what happens is, roughly speaking, at the moment, uh, companies using Ireland as for tax sheltering, they're declaring about 200 billion, okay? So it's about 200,000 million quid every year. And... They basically use two or three key schemes then to say that some of what we've just declared in profits to our shareholders shouldn't be, uh, you know, defined as profits to the to the revenue commissioners. In other words, we'll tell our shareholders we made all this extra money, but when we come to actually be taxed on it, there are reasons for us to reduce our tax bill. Okay, so that's the point. So we've just discussed one of them. The primary one is the idea that we get capital allowances. But maybe I'll just explain a little bit more for you, Tony, you know, where it comes from. So say you're a, you know, a mid-sized manufacturing company in Ireland and you've just laid out a million euros on a new machine. Right. And you've got the invoice. You've got the invoice. And you say, right, we have spent a million euro on that machine. We estimate that that machine will keep us competitive for the next 10 years. So a decade. Right. And we're going to write that machine off over time because it will get depreciated. Someone else will come along with a better machine. And by that stage, it will have served its purpose. In that situation, the Irish government says, listen, you have spent real money. We have the invoice. And we're going to say when you get profits off your business, it's fair enough for you to say that actually you should cover your costs before you pay your profit tax. That's the way it, it, it arises. Now, what I always say is 
if you're a single mother from Ballyferma or Tala, where I'm from, or Ballymun, you don't get a reduction in your taxes when you go back to work because you went to college or because you spent money on your own. In other words, if you invest in your development and whatever else and you get a half decent job you don't get any acknowledgement for that so straight away you've already given the company an advantage that people workers don't get but you can see where the logic is right but then you try and transfer that logic into intangible assets and actually it doesn't work at all but still they give the deduction so think about it case a was a machine case b might be a logo case a where the machine starts to depreciate it's because it's being used but when you use the McDonald's logo or the Apple logo or the they increase in value, they don't reduce in value. So that that's that's not comparable. Number one, even the software, it, you know, the the whole thing about the about the um, Apple phone is that the software that's in it, it generates a kind of a, a positive what economists call a positive externality coming back in internalized because the more people who use the Apple nine or the Apple, whatever it is at this stage the more value that that company has for the next Apple coming around the corner. So, you know, it doesn't depreciate in the same way. And secondly, it's not capable. We're not capable of knowing how much they actually spend. So in case A, the, you know, the medium-sized manufacturing firm, they have an actual invoice from another company. In case B, Apple have an invoice from themselves. <laughs> you know, so how are you? <laughs> and, and, and I just want to make this, because this these are the facts. So the largest single export market for US software is Ireland. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and to put that, so just to give you, they refer to it as the missing export. So yeah. Apple registers in the balance of payments as a contract manufactured exports from Ireland after importing assembled phones from China. Yes, exactly. So, think so about they're that. saying effectively Ireland is the primary export base for a, for Apple, which is where from where? Like, what, what, I mean, the funny oh, thing about maybe, it is maybe the lads in in uh, in Cork are producing, you know, they're like gazillions of them. Gazillions. Well, here's the very interesting point on that: when the Irish government were challenging the idea that we were giving tax advantages to Apple previously around the you know the so-called double Irish, do you know what the what the the primary defence for Ireland was? We don't create value in Ireland. So we shouldn't be taxed here. In yes. other words, Apple shouldn't be taxed in Ireland because we don't create the value in Ireland. So now it's suddenly 180 degrees about face. And they're saying all of the value is in Ireland because we export all of these products from Ireland. Well, we know that the, the phones are produced mostly in China, right? There's a, there's a city <laughs> called iPhone City. Well, they, I mean, I didn't know that, but you're a fountain of wisdom. Some of the protests that have broken out in China recently, one of the big fears was that that the zero COVID uh, thing, that, that they would get, that Omicron would get into what they call de facto iPhone city. And when I say city, it's 200,000 people. Is this Foxconn or is this this place? And, 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 and they're, they're the manufacturers of, of, the, of, the, yeah. of the key components of, of your iPhone. Uh, That's right. And, and like when you think about that, that's where the manufacturing is taking place. And that's why, like, like that's why Ireland, and we may talk about illicit financial flows before we wrap up, but I just think that's why we have to be honest about this. And you're, I'm glad you pointed it out because we said we, we couldn't, you know, we wouldn't take that money from Apple because we weren't the place where the, where, where the, the, the item was. was yeah. Yeah. And now, and now we want it the other way by saying, well, actually, we're the place where the intellectual property resides. Yes. Um, and, and, and again, to put that in context, so back to pharma, people are paying over the odds across the globe for for for, for things they shouldn't because mm-hmm. Ireland has dug its heels in. And we will hear, and we've only seen recently, you know, 500 new jobs created and the highest level of jobs created in the FDI sector uh, 
in in the history of the state happened this year. These these are based on uh, on results that have only come out in the last twenty four hours, Brian. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I mean, the, 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 I mean, I think that's a really important point, and I, I would say that um, the point you make about the increased prices is very important. I think we should probably, at some point in a few minutes, maybe discuss a little bit about about the fact that one of the other drivers of the record tax take for corporations is a profit. Uh, inflationary cycle where they're using the, the, the you know the the, the post COVID era to ramp up profits that are you know on the basis that people we, we, we'll get to that now. But let's yeah. you know we definitely want to come back to that next. But can we just just to give listeners before we wrap on this particular point yeah. the idea then that even next year as we're facing into what is you know the real economy is in recession the UK economy is into recession the you know we've seen. The the eurozone estimates of of low zero minus growth, and Ireland still sticking out there saying, "Well, you know, we won't grow by as much next year, but we'll continue yeah. to grow." Give me a sense of how we, you know, first of all, two things, and I know you shouldn't give two part questions, but how does how what does that speak to for the real economy? And yeah. two, where does that where do you, do you see it as as in how long will the EU tolerate us? Being the people who are who are literally taking the taking the pie off other countries' tables, but they're very good questions, and they take a little bit of thinking about. So the first thing I'd say is that sorry, I didn't fully answer the last question. So just for people who are really listening, I just want to make sure I do. So we've done the capital assets one, right? And there are two others. There's there's a thing in the in the tax code called losses brought forward. So say you make good profits in 2021, you made you made good money this year, but you've had a few years of loss because of COVID. The argument there is that you're allowed to discount any profit tax you're meant to pay in 2022 against losses you might have made in 2020 or 2021. Now, that might seem, again, reasonable for a small cafe or for your small manufacturing plant in that loan, right? Because they may well have been struggling through those years. The problem is that the Irish government are so generous in how they define losses and, and so generous in how wide you can cast your net that effectively, if you're if any of the units in your company made any losses anytime, anywhere, they can be defined as a loss that you can bring forward. So currently sitting on the Irish tax books are 200 billion euros worth of losses that can be claimed by corporations against future profits. So that's 200 billion worth of profits that effectively will be sheltered in the Irish tax code. That's the second big one. And then the third one is this idea that inside companies now, again, to give your listeners a feel for how capitalism actually works, you know, global companies now, there could be six or 700 different legal companies within one company. In other words, the front company might be KBC Bank or something, or you, you know, uh, even, you know, Apple or whoever. But yet when you look at its very complicated legal structure, it has about, you know, could have a thousand or 800 companies and they spread across 150 countries. And inside trade, trade within the corporations is actually is actually more important than trade between companies and final consumers. So more of the global capitalist trade takes place among units of companies within global transnational companies than does between those companies and final consumers. And all of that trade is very, very difficult to, to assess. And so what happens is companies tend to say, we, they, they can sort of manipulate their books. So it looks like a lot of profits from that internal trade happen in low-tax jurisdictions and not very many profits happen in high-tax jurisdictions. So those are the three ways the state helps 
companies. Mm. One, through the capital allowances, two, through the losses that their companies can bring forward, and three, by having quite lax rules on what's called transfer pricing. Uh, the idea that you can transfer bits of your company around the place and you can make up the prices as you go along. I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating, but you get the point. No, but it, you, this... There's ways like we, it's one of the one of the, the reasons why we've been so open and now so exposed to this because as you said, ten companies account for for like over fifty percent of this, and we we Absolutely. we're we're really exposed with. I do let let's move to the this inflationary pressure thing because I recall a uh, an NGO in the US a few months ago when this cycle taking place, um, they went through and they they trawled through. Uh, profit uh, calls with many of the large multinationals and corporates in the U- in the US, and the phrase kept coming up to to charge a little bit more premium. You mm, know, mm, people were expecting mm. prices to go up, but by exactly. a bit, we can yeah. we can there if they're expecting it, we know we can build it up by three percent. Throw it, up, let's push it to five. Mm. And and I'm not just exa- I'm not just making this stuff up. I mean, there's this is this is because I've seen people in 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 Ireland, economists in Ireland, suggest that this is madness. That's not how it works. But here's here's a here's one about about Procter and Gamble. You're you're able to not only pass on the inflated food costs to the customer, you're also maybe add a tiny premium to that, and that goes into your profits line. Mm. Now, I mean, you think P and G. We're probably all sitting in the house right now or or wherever we're sitting, and there's products belonging to them everywhere around us. And there yeah. that's the mentality. So maybe if you could tell me a little bit about how yeah. that's been operating, because you know, uh, I've seen people suggested in Ireland get shouted yeah. down saying, Oh, it's not, it's not it's not an influence. It clearly is. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, on the one hand, we started this conversation with the question, how is tax saving Ireland doing? And in, in lots of ways, it's powering ahead. And as you know. That woman that we don't remember her name, she came on expecting this kind of congratulations, you know, you've done a great job. And what I kept thinking as I was driving was, first of all, I was pleasantly surprised that she was being tackled. But secondly, I was thinking, yeah, and amidst all of this self-congratulations, we're living through one of the worst housing crises that I've ever, you know, the worst in the Irish state, one of the worst in the world. And so what you've got is this sense that Ireland, you know, is this great success story. But hang on. For ordinary people, particularly younger people, particularly uh, poorer people, it's an absolute nightmare to try and even have basic things that give you any level of security or dignity in your life. So, you know, this this kind of combination of vast wealth and privilege and profits and great success story up here and then lived experience for so many people of struggle, anxiety, anguish, the fear factor, and of course, the inflation recycle that's built into property prices in Ireland. So, you know, vast levels of profits for, uh, you know, real estate investment trusts or for uh, institutional landlords, and they're coming as a direct transfer from ordinary people. So it's very important to say part of the picture for tax haven Ireland is true, but the narrative that they spin is deeply political. It's about, you know, yeah. self-congratulations and well, saying, aren't we great? Don't rock the boat. The, the, the Silk Report put that in context Context already a few weeks ago when it showed a huge increase, 60% increase in the number of people working who are now at risk of poverty. Working poor, yeah. yeah. Like, it's, it's, like, Brent, that's phenomenal. Like, a country, a country that has the highest, fastest, as you said, record tax um, profits, yeah. record people, at, numbers of people at work, and yet it's like a 60% increase of mm. working poor. That is, that, that's a failure. Uh, but, but again, then to bring it back to that inflationary pressure where yeah. you also have these companies 
that are charging yeah. a premium because they're in the cycle. They they may not be as, as impacted as, say, you know, a builder who relies on a commodity that he needs, concrete or, or wood or whatever, you know, or iron. He's, mm-hmm. he's affected. Some of these companies are simply taking advantage now. Absolutely. There was a really important study done by the equivalent of the Central Statistics Office, the uh, Bureau of, of Economic Statistics in, in America. And what they showed was, this is I, I remember it very well, what it said, right? First of all, they said that over the long period from 1960 until 2020, so that 60-year period, there was a pattern. And the pattern was corporate profits accounted for 11% of price inflation. Increased wages over the time, obviously, you know, what accounted in general for about 59%, and the rest was at material cost increases. And during the last two years, it's almost exactly been flipped. What's happened is most companies downstream are genuinely paying higher prices, maybe by 30, 40% higher for their commodities based on the genuine increase in gas and oil. So there is there is a genuine increase there. But this is the crucial bit. The wage claims are low because of people's anxiety after COVID. So they only made up 7%. And corporate profit gouging made up about 57, 58% of it. So what's happened, as you say, is that little bit more idea that, look, in a normal cycle, corporations are under some competitive pressure. They can't very well just ramp up their prices because, you know, other competitors won't won't match them and they'll lose market share. But here, in a world where everyone's world is upside down and you can plausibly say your costs are up, well, let's build in not just a little bit more profits, let's build in enormous amount of extra profits. And that's driving, (laughs) partly driving the increases in corporation tax receipts because the corporations are having field days off the back of a, a direct transfer from working people who are paying the higher prices to them. And, and okay, and I accept that, but also what you don't, what, what in this in this new upside down, what it's mm. also creating is shareholders are looking at it and saying, well, if you aren't seeing those bumps, we think you're 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 you don't have Where? value. Yes, and that's creating its own cycle. Then in the in the world of finance, where they're looking at it, going, "Ho ho, hang on, lads! I'm after seeing their their profits and they're 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 declaring this. Why aren't you doing this?" And and it's creating that upward pressure, which goes you know counter cyclical to what we're told happens in the free market. You know, uh, no, definitely. And there's two really important tropes or sort of ideological moves that the Irish government make around this stuff. Right, the first one is around the um the vast amount of extra corporation profits. There's never an investigation of why it comes in. It's just a good news story, right? But it's only good news to a certain uh, stage because when you try and spend the money, you're always told, ah, but we might not have it tomorrow. Don't look for for hospital beds. Don't look for teachers or things that actually improve the well-being of the citizens. Just leave it there as a, a good news story. We might not have it tomorrow. So just it's, you know, uh, rainy day. Uh, I disagree with you because they will come in and say, well, and we also have to pay bankers more. Oh, yeah. We have to pay bankers more. And we've got to, uh, you know, we've got to pay down our, our, our corporate debt, which in the end is our sorry, our national debt, which was partly, as we all know, lumped on us because of the bankers in the first instance. So that's one. Nar- one of their narratives is. We've got all this extra money. It's brilliant. We have been successful, but don't expect us to spend any of it on you because it might not be there tomorrow. So it's always tomorrow never comes, isn't it? But also, the, it's really important that we got we got we came out of the crash, and we were told for years that we couldn't do this because we had to play within the debt to GDP ratio rules. Mm. And the and then 
those rules got shelved by the EU with with COVID. They got shelved. Yeah. They literally they haven't like like they once they once if you recall Brian they once tried to find Spain for coloring outside the lines and Spain told them to fuck off. I mean That's literally right. wrote yeah. on a letter fuck off. Um, but nonetheless, the the even if we were playing within the rules now. We'd have additional billions to be spending yes. on those crises that we're saying, Very good and, point. and and it just you know so so let if we can't yeah. hear for a decade that we have to play to these rules, and then when we actually actually we can still play within your rules, can we have can we have more hospital beds? Can yeah. we resource these? Can we keep nurses in the country? And they say, oh, we might not have this money in the long term. Well, that's your fault because you could have you could have borrowed at zero percent for for twenty years, and you decided not to. Yeah, um, yeah and I mean, look, and the and everything you said there is very useful, and I would add to it that, um, as well as that sort of narrative of we can't spend it because we don't have it, we want to stay in the rules. Now the argument is uh, we can't spend it because we might not have it tomorrow. But like they are able to sort of give one-off payments tactically and strategically now but they're not able to say you know what we could do we could have a one-off spending of seven or eight billion on the housing crisis that, that's possible now as you say because within yeah. their own rules they can actually do that now yeah. and so all the lies that they told about we have to play within the rules have now been shown up because now when they can still play within them they won't they won't spend the money. Ah, but the narrative still exists and it still it still pervades much of media much of the commentary pervades that that austerity saved the economy those, and, I mean, <clears throat> and, and I mean, like everybody forgets it was literally quantitative easing, and the and the taps been turned on. That 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 may, meant Ireland hadn't could you know could trade its debt, could 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 kick it kick it up the road. And we're still yeah. being told Nama made a profit, but we're supposed to forget about the years that it took us to get to this level to break even level, and expect that 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 that, that doesn't have a a social cost and b an economic cost over those years. So it's crazy stuff. So there is a narrative, and we do need to push back against it. I just want to ask you though one other thing before because mm. i'm conscious of time mm. they next year they're saying you know we're going to go up again slightly we're going to go up again slightly yeah. so they're clearly committed to this um so yeah. here's the question to you as someone who who is you know um i i, I would say you know leans a left-wing economist how do we start to to say either okay, this is the system we're in now, and we need we need more people to benefit from it, and how do we wean ourselves off that? Yeah, again, that's a very good question. I mean, the the the, the really important narrative that comes out of your austerity argument, I think, is that it shows a lie to what they want to say now. It's like in some ways they make it up as they go along, and they create arguments for context, as you've just said. So if you add, you know, if you add all the arguments up, you show that there are contradictions in their arguments. So I'll give you another one. You know, we've had years of austerity, right? We all know that. And one of the consequences of that austerity was that working people paid higher taxes. You know, think about it. When they want to increase your taxes, they don't say we're going to ask for a one-off increase in your income tax because we've had the banking crisis. They say we're going to structurally build in the USC. You'll pay it forever. Whereas when they want to give you something like a 200 quid uh, thanks very much for your electricity. It's one off. You don't get anything that will be structurally that they'll have to pay for down the road. But the key thing is every economist, whether they're left or right, will accept at some level that there's been a that there's been a, de a decoupling of real wages and productivity because of neoliberalism. So in other words, if you go back over and any set of statistics, you'll see that real wages have not kept up at all with productivity. So in other words, workers are losing relative to the amount of work they're doing. And yet, the big narrative from almost every economist in this country and on, all, and on an awful lot of shows is 
that workers have to be patient because if they ask for an extra euro, it'll set off a price spiral they never have seen before. The whole we'll country will fall into. We'll, we'll lose. We'll lose competitiveness, and we'll lose. The, the whole economy will nearly collapse. It's like the old idea that there'll, there'll be a run on the banks, and we'll all be waiting outside. The, the you know, in other words, there's this catastrophizing idea that workers can't upset a, a really delicate balance in the economy. And if they ask for anything extra, I mean, Karl Marx dealt with this, this question back 150 years ago when he was talking to people about the idea that a vast amount of what goes on in the economy is profit gouging and pulling mm. away. So there's no obvious necessity for them to put up their prices because they pay you a higher wage. That is a political decision to keep profits at their own rates. And so my argument to working people listening to this is that there has been a spiral, all right, but it's a it's a profit uh, price spiral that we're mm. in. And working people are more than entitled to go in and ask for a pay rise. And the way I would put it is, look, you know, you're saying you have to protect your part. In other words, you've put your prices up because you can't afford not to increase the, you know, in other words, if you're f- facing higher costs, you're entitled to put your prices up. Well, why am I allowed to put mine up then? You know, workers are, are completely entitled, but of course, you need good trade unions to fight for that, and 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 that's a work at, at the very. If we're being very generous, that's a work in progress. Uh, yeah. Tony. So yeah, well, we know, can. Well, I I just okay, right. Let's let's bring this thing to a close and ask one one big question that that okay. that, that that was because it's something that I know you've written about before, uh, and I've I've mentioned illicit flows are uh, and illicit flows by the way you know when we say illicit flows people think immediately of you know they'll say words like oligarchs and they'll say words like this it's it, it's not just there's your your oligarch could be it could, doesn't have to have a russian yacht okay mm. but but a lot of that is still something that we're uncomfortable looking at in ireland in terms of the money that flows through uh, what was the, what was the phrase they used more money flows through the IFSC on a weekly basis than does than does through the entire Irish economy on an annual basis. The the, the real economy, as as we call it, and we're we're not willing to really to address that either as a country. Um, you know, we there's there's a reason why we had this big boast that every every fifteen seconds an airplane least in least in Dublin flies off somewhere in the world. It yeah. wasn't because we were great at manufacturing planes, Brian. It was <laughs> exactly yeah. I mean, look, the way I would put it is this, right? Um, the Irish establishment, and let's let's explain what who that who we're talking about, right? So there are. It is true that there are about two hundred to two hundred and forty thousand tax units, either married couples or single people, who who earn over a hundred grand, right? And their average is about one hundred and eighty. So there's a big group of people in Ireland for whom tax haven Ireland works very well. Thanks very much. And they're all the professional classes, right? Then you also have on top of that another 200,000 people who work for the multinational sector. Plenty of them are decent, hardworking people who are earning a higher wage by about 50% than the average in the domestic economy. And fair play to them because they're producing a lot of value for those companies. And we never have any axe to grind with those people. And of course, if you work for a multinational, it's perfectly reasonable for you to say, uh, this has worked for me and my family and I'm happy they're here. There's nothing wrong with saying that. The question is, if you're analyzing from a sort of a more societal level, the question is, well, how many people is it working for? And could we do something better? That's the way I think about it. So it's not to say, you know, uh, Galway doesn't benefit from a pharma industry and wouldn't it be terrible? I mean, of course, it would be terrible. It would be a tragedy for those people to lose their jobs. The question becomes, how reliant do you want to be on these multinationals? 
How willing are you to uh, think about the consequences internationally, but even more importantly, maybe for people who are worrying about the next paycheck? How you know would you look at this when you think about we are down the bottom of the league table? So on the one hand, we're at the top of the league tables in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, uh, you know, wealth per person, if you look at that. But who has it? Like, you know, if you're living in a society where you can't get a hospital bed, where you're living with it, with the highest pupil teacher ratios, one of the sets of highest pupil teacher ratios, when you go and get your kids into a creche and it's the most second or third most expensive in Europe, when you try and get a hip replaced and you're on the wait, longest waiting list in Europe, the question becomes, what advantage is a tax haven to the vast majority of us, maybe five, maybe four and a half million of us out of five million, mm. if all it means is we pay higher taxes than the average in Europe and we get worse public services, we get a worse democracy because it's beholden to small groups of unelected, unaccountable, very wealthy and privileged and powerful people. What advantage does that give to us? In other words, what I'd ask people to think about is, does it really benefit you and your family to have these corporations here monopolizing the land, driving up the house prices, driving up the cost of uh, mortgages, driving up the costs? And then we live in a very high cost economy because um, Ireland is one of the most neoliberal societies in the world. And the way that they keep up their cost competitiveness is to have high prices for, for people except wages. Wages are not very high in Ireland. So to my mind, the lived experience of the majority should be the benchmark on which we base our discussion around the economy. And if it isn't servicing us as well as even, for example, as you said, the Danish economy, which mm. has about the same population, or the Norwegian economy, which I know it's slightly different because of the oil. But the point is, there are even models within... I disagree with you. So they say Norwegian has oil. We've, all, mm. we've had this natural resource in a way of being the best waffen pipes for moving your money through for numbers of years now. And it is. It is. Very that's what point, it yeah. is. And I think we're like if we're going to put ourselves there, this go back to there, use their words against them. Our USP, mm. our unique selling point is yeah. we have these waffen points and you can, you can we've waffen pipes and you can move it through. And I just find that that we, you know, okay, let's be honest about it. Let's tell the truth. This is what we've done. But what hasn't happened is we haven't had a sovereign wealth fund we haven't had a betterment of society we've seen we've, we've already yeah. touched on a higher number of working poor than ever in the history of state three and a half thousand children homeless a, a housing crisis that they tell us they can't address when they when we know in 2006 2007 2008 they built over sixty five thousand homes each of those years yeah i mean i, mean, I think that's, that's that's you know i agree with you 100 and you know there's this discussion now that we talk about and, the, and you hear people on the likes of news talk saying they're just, they use language like we're disgusted when other people say we're a failed state, right? And it's like this idea that, you know, around discourse, we're going to define what you're allowed to say. So you're not even allowed to say that we're a failed state. And the way I would put it back to them is uh, you're allowed to think that there's more than one group of people living in this state. And you're allowed to say that for every, you know, upper class group that have done well out of the state over, over time, there are plenty of people in the middle who are suffering, uh, you know, a cost of living crisis that needn't be as sharp as it is, and people closer to the bottom who've never had a break from the Irish state, who are who, who do live in a failed state. This is a failed state for very many people. Well, that's, and, the, cult, that's the cult of civility. Bro. Well, of course, and we yeah. get told that all, like, it's, 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 it's me arguing with... Um, with Ronan Lyons and Ronan saying something to me and then someone replying and I say, oh, would you ever fuck off? And they're going, and even though I've just put up three, three graphs that, that, that contradict something, they say, ah, he said fuck. <laughs> you know, it's like... But, I, yeah, but it isn't, it's very, it's insidious because it's about saying 
that there's only one Ireland. There's a uniform experience here. And the privileged groups who are on the radio get to set the tone for everybody else. Yeah. And all I'm saying is that it's for me, it's really important that the likes of your show, that people who have a platform actually, you know, look at Ireland in the round. Um, if you're living, as you say, if you're one of the five, one in five children who goes to school hungry in this state every day, um, it's pretty hard to say that that's not failing you, especially when we are one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, if we were back in the 50s or in the 1840s during the famine, you know, there were, there were political contexts there, but you could understand people being hungry. You can't understand people being hungry in this society. And to me, that is nearly the single most powerful statistic to say that one in five of the children in this country are going to school without, without food in their bellies. And to me, um, there's just such an indictment on the elites who will consistently, not only will they ignore those people, but they will actually try to screen them out so that no one else can talk about them either. In other words, you know, you're not allowed to say this because it's off bounds for a discussion that we're having. Well, I'm sorry, it's not. And, you know, if we if we finish on, you know, we're going to finish it soon. You know, it's really important. I think we're both of us are trying to get across to people that although this starts as quite technical stuff and there are certainly technical aspects to this stuff in the end, it's about class. It's about a class of people who control the economy and a class of people who don't and who therefore suffer because of that. You know, that's the in the end what goes on. I, absolutely. It, come, it boils down to class and everything else is creative accounting. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So and, and it's, uh, you know, and I think, you know, to give the book a, pl- a plug, we, we, we identified this in Tax Haven Ireland that that Ireland had moved to this model. And I mean, you couldn't get a better, uh, you know, confirmation of it than to say what we predicted, which was that this is going to be a society that has more tax receipts because it has changed its tax evasion model or tax uh, dodging model. And now we're looking at these taxes rolling in for very, very wealthy people. So thanks very much. But the one little bit of hope I have before I finish is, if you look at it, there are less and less of your, certainly your listeners, but, but even Irish people in general, there's less and less of them that are being bought over by Project Fear. So you look now, particularly younger people, they're putting their faith in Sinn Féin, they're putting their faith in, you know, maybe it's the Social Democrats, people before profit that I'm a member of. But what they're saying is something fundamental has to change in this society. And so although on any given day, the tax haven model works for the elites, actually over time, it's eroding the social contract that they rely on. Mm. And they recognize that but can't do very much about it because you would think when they've got that extra seven billion in taxes, that the first thing they do is spend it on building houses. But of course, if they do that, they tear up the contract with the REITs and the, yeah, the, the yeah. institutional landlords who are getting record profits here. So nice. there is a contradiction for them. And I think over the course of the next few years, they'll be under increasing pressure. Now, where 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 that ends up, I don't know. But it's worth not being too demoralized by the fact that they have currently monopolized political power because they may not monopolize it forever. And as people look for more, especially younger people, um, I think there are opportunities there. Given, you know, given the world we're in, given the fact of climate change, given the fact that there is all sorts of pressures on people, it's important for progressives to hold on to that hope that there is change. You know, it's possible and we have to keep fighting for it.
let's end on that positive note then let's end there brian because i think it's important we've we, you know we're it's, it's freezing cold it's uh it, it's it's a bitterly cold december and you know I, I did comment i think that some of that is to do with the it shock coming back into office soon um i believe that uh, but, but nonetheless we will my, my bad jokes aside brian um where's the book by, for sale by the way uh, well, you can get it on Pluto's uh, website at this stage. It was in Easton's, but I'm not a very diligent, so I don't know if it's yeah. still there. Well, but, look, uh, we'll, 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 we'll but, give me give me the link along with along with those graphs you mentioned, and we'll we'll put them in for listeners. Yeah, so and it's, click on it. I think it's on fifty percent off until Christmas, so you can get it for about six or seven euro or uh, six or seven quid. So it's not ah, a bad money for Christmas all present. Listen, folks, <laughs> I, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend it. Uh, thanks so much for the time. It's great to chat. Great to catch up with you. Um, and I, I think that was a little bit therapeutic as well. Uh, we are back. Um, tomorrow we have oh, I can't even remember and, and as I said I think I told Brian before this I get to sit down with David Gillick this week as well so the nerdy uh, runner in me is going to be have in his element thanks for the support thanks for listening thanks for sharing and we will talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Subscribe now on Patreon.